0: Uh, I want to personally welcome you guys to worship with us this morning. My name is Ricardo Stewart, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I get the opportunity to do a bulk of the preaching, uh, and we'll have the opportunity to do that today. However, I have a couple things that I want to place before you guys. First is, we sent a team of people uh, to Guatemala who just landed early this morning, and we should have a picture of that crew there. That is the motley crew that is in Guatemala. And... They are there serving in one of the more blighted communities in Guatemala City. It's called La Limonada, which is means lemonade. Um, but there's a backstory to the reason why it's called lemonade. That's kind of gross, so I'm not going to share. Um, it's a really, really tough community. And while there, they are partnering with an organization in the ministry called Lemonade International. And when I think of the name in Lemonade International, it sounds like like a good time. Okay, it's not. Okay, it's. It's, it's not. It is in a community that is high gang um, activity. Um, it is high um, in terms of rates of teenage pregnancies and people dropping out of school and so forth. And so the organization that we partner with there is primarily to help Um, intervention to make sure that these young children are not getting into gangs, that these children are being educated, that these children are having the opportunity to hear the message and the story of Jesus Christ, and that we're able to care for them. And so Will Vikirovich, one of our pastors here, has led that team over there, and so we want to make sure that you guys are praying for them while they're away, and we're going to have an opportunity later in our our time to be able to pray for them. Second thing is, um, we started something here maybe three or four years ago, maybe even five years ago. We started it at some point in the past. Um, called All of Life Interviews. And All of Life Interviews was our way to do something, right? Part one, what we saw is in most churches, what we would do is churches would bring up a missionary, and um, whoever he or she was, and they would say, this person is doing the real work of God. And they're going to this really hard country and this really tough place, and they're doing the real work of God. And we're gonna pray for them and so forth. We're gonna give money to them, which we should. However, it communicated that everybody else who wasn't doing what they're doing wasn't doing the real work of God. You were basically like on the JV team of Christianity, and you were never going to make varsity, and you just have to deal with it, okay? Well, we didn't see that in the Bible. In the Bible, we see that everybody created the image of God, trusting in Christ that whatever we do, we're in full-time vocational ministry. It just depends on where God routes your check. And so we said, what if we actually brought people on stage and the various vocations that they, they were in and be able to highlight them, commission them, and send them to the, um, into the world to be God's missionaries wherever it is that God has them? Okay, that concept in itself of all of life interviews came from Jim Mullins. And the interesting thing about it is we've been doing this for however many years in the past. Um, however, Jim Mullins himself has never been interviewed. So I have the privilege today to interview the interviewer, Jim Mullins. So would you put your hands together as he comes on stage? Okay. Hey, glad to have you here.
1: (laughs) So so the first thing I want to ask you, Ricardo,
0: (laughs) is tell us who you are and what you do. Uh,
1: (laughs) uh, I'm Jim Mullins. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I also help lead Surge, the network that we're a part of.
0: Good, good. That's great. Um, So (laughs) where do you see the integration of faith and work and what you do?
1: (laughs) Well, you know... uh, it's interesting. I had this project I've been working on for the last year of writing this book. Uh-huh. Um, and so it's, it's an interesting thing because um, it, I had to step out of my normal discipline and think really, what does it look like, the discipline of writing, and how does that reflect God's character? And realizing that God is a communicative God who's given us the good gift of language, and that we, when we sit down to write, it's almost as if we are cultivating the potential out of the garden of language that he's given us. And when done well, we reflect a God who's a communicator. So, so why? <laughs> that was really good. I'm just, I'm trying to show the other people that I get inter, that I interview how to answer
0: those questions. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know if that was a backhanded compliment or what. That was. <laughs> <laughs> no. So, why'd you write the book? I wrote the
1: book. Uh, primary reason is that. Um, I think a lot of people, when you think of mission, you think, I need to add another thing, or I need to add a lot more stuff to my life, and I wanted to show how everything from gardening to accounting to all that we do is an opportunity to participate with God in his mission, huh. and, and I'll say this. I don't know if this is the best book that's ever been written on mission. It's definitely not. It's, I think it's a good one, but it is the only book on mission that does theological reflection on the Wu Tang clan, Turkish basketball, and prosthetic dog testicles. I can guarantee that.
0: <laughs> yeah. I'm just gonna leave it at that. That's right. All right. Uh, speaking of prosthetic, now I'm not gonna move, I'm gonna repeat what you just said. Yeah. Because um, I, I do know that story. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us how the book is used to serve others. Yeah, yeah.
1: So I think the main thing is that uh, all of us in this room, we are in different industries and in different neighborhoods. And the hope would be that it would catalyze creative, sacrificial love. And if you can just imagine if there was a deep intentionality uh, with all of us in this room and the various neighborhoods and industries that we're in, Jesus would be put on display. And the other thing is uh, the way that we want to use this to serve others is I'm not keeping the money from this book. What we're going to do is we're going to create this little fund called the Carrot Cake Fund. And I can explain Carrot Cake. It's in the book. Um, Uh, Explain explain Carrot Cake. Carrot Cake is, um, when I imagine how Carrot Cake was created, I imagine that it was born out of both necessity and what you had. Because nobody makes Carrot Cake just on their own. I think someone was coming over for dinner, and they realized they didn't have dessert, so they looked in the pantry, they looked in the refrigerator, and they saw some carrots there, and they said, what can I do with that? to serve the people who are coming. And I think that the process of carrot cake teaches us how to love our neighbors well, and that we just look at the stuff we have, and if we creatively, intentionally say, how can we leverage that for the the good of our neighbor? It can be a real blessing and gift. So uh, the money from the book is going to go toward whatever crazy ideas you guys and me and all of us can come up with about how we can love our neighbors well. And the only criteria is it's just got to be out-of-the-box crazy stuff to love others <laughs> which fitting for you
0: yeah. there there is um, we're as a church a part of this form project yeah. where we're looking at different practices that make us more like jesus um, what were some of the practices that maybe you've done that helped you and shaped you to be able to write this book
1: yeah i would say the the main one actually was fasting that i would get to these points i know i don't look like i do a lot of fasting but <laughs> uh... <laughs> uh I, uh, I would get to these points where I was stuck or that I was dealing with either pride or shame or something in relation to the awkward internal emotions uh, that went with the book. And I realized that there were days when I was writing when I would actually need to fast and immerse the times of normal eating in prayer and prayer hmm. and doing business with the Lord. Okay.
0: Alright, so we are having a party for Jim and this was not something that Jim said, hey, can you guys throw a party for me? We did this. Um, and so it's a book, launch, book launching party uh, and all the information is going to be here or you can go online and you can see it. But it's going to be Wednesday, October 16th. Is this, this upcoming? Two, it's, right. it's two Wednesdays yeah, in the yeah. future. It's in the uh, future, we are yeah. gonna have this for Jim here at the church, and so we would love for you guys to be there. If you're going to come, this is just my plug, not Jim's. Uh, This is not just open to our church. There's a lot of other leaders and people who Jim has shaped in the city. They're also invited, so make sure we come first and so we get whatever's there and they can just get the leftovers, okay? Um, So make sure we're we're here for that, to be able to have a good time with each other for that. I personally just want to thank you for not only just writing the book, but just for being who you are, personally to me, and then also to the church, because you have shaped the church in ways that most people cannot make the, the, connect the dots to it in the way that we think about vocation and mission and so many other things here as leadership. So would you guys personally just thank Jim with me for that, yeah. So we're gonna stand, I'm gonna ask you guys to stand. We're gonna, we're gonna pray, not just for Jim, we're gonna pray for every single person in this room uh, called by God into the, into the places and where you're at, whether you're a student, uh, you're a stay-at-home mom, whether you're a stay-at-home dad, whether you are making things, writing books, selling books, buying books that you're never going to read. Um, we want to pray for you as God has you in that, in that area. And then also we're going to lift up the men and women from our congregation that are in Guatemala right now uh, as well. So if you feel comfortable, extend the hand. Um, and if not, uh, you can just stand there. <laughs> God, we thank you for the grace in which you've given us, and we thank you, Lord, and your very grace, um, how you gift us and how you gift your church with gifts, not just people and personalities, God. That might not actually be what you're doing, but the gifts is what the scriptures say you give us for the body, for the edifying of the body that we may look more and more like your son Jesus collectively. So we thank you for the men and women in this congregation, um, for the, the places in which they will serve today, Tomorrow and throughout the week, for the people in whom they would serve and whom they would touch, that they would do so with the anointing and the presence and the purposes of Christ. God I pray, and I thank you for Jim and for him and, and Mike in writing this book, and that you would use it to serve the body of Christ, that people would be uh, equipped, that people would have a sense of awe of who you are and what you are doing, that they would take the gifts and talents they have, not just in this life, but usher it into your kingdom as it is coming. God, we pray right now for Will and the team that's in Guatemala, that you would not only protect them, but you would do exceedingly and abundantly more than they can ask, think, or imagine. Help their eyes to see all that they need to see that is physical and the things that they cannot see apart from you that is spiritual. Help them to see the light of Christ and also the darkness and be able to speak and act in ways, Lord, on your behalf. Father, we thank you, and God, we praise you. We give you the honor and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you guys think, Jim again?
1: Today's scripture is Exodus 15, 1 through 5. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
0: All right, if you guys have your Bibles, why don't you guys go ahead and open to Exodus chapter 15. Uh, That's where we'll be at this morning, verses 1 through 21. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and keep it raised really high, and then one of the ushers will walk down the aisle and get you a copy of God's Word. Again, Exodus chapter 15. Um, Let me just kind of let you know where we're at. This is the unique part in Exodus where it is what... uh, what I would call a praise break. And if you've ever been in a charismatic church, a praise break is in the middle of the service, the band will just come up out of nowhere and start singing and people start singing and dancing and so forth. Uh, considering the fact that most of us can't dance, we're not gonna do that, but I wanted to explain to you what that looked like. Um, this is a praise break in the, in the middle of Exodus, meaning you had the first part of Exodus, like the actual Exodus that we, that we just taught about last week, and then the next part is gonna be the wandering and so forth, but in the middle of it, you have this song. And I was thinking about how do you teach a song, because it's very difficult, uh, because a lot of it is is poetry and so forth, but it's not so much the teaching of the song in terms of the words and what they mean in Hebrew and and so forth, as it is what does song and what does singing do to the people of God? And so that's what we're gonna look at uh, today, but before we get there, I have to be able to recap um, the story for us to be able to get to where we're at. So Exodus in itself begins Um, where Genesis ends, which makes a lot of sense. Um, Genesis ends with the people of God, the people whom God is going to use to bless the world. Um, It ends with them in in, in Exodus, excuse me, in Egypt, and things are actually pretty decent for them. Until um, Pharaoh dies, and there's a new Pharaoh, and Joseph, who gets the family there, he's gone. No one cares about Joseph. The Pharaoh doesn't care about the people of God. The people of God have grown to about 2 million people now, And now is when the heartaches begin. And I want us to be able to understand this as a real story because it's a real story. And that is, God's people for the next 400 years were slaves. Just so you know, there's never been a moment in the history of this world where being a slave was a good thing. While being slaves, not only were they caused to do horrible work, they were also called um, to lose their children. And this happened over a period of time in different ways. And you got to understand that the people of God were people who would share stories. So, of course, they had heard of Yahweh, they had heard of God, but they had not yet experienced this God. One of their own, who was not was born but then raised in Pharaoh's palace, was a man by the name of Moses. Now, Moses himself, as he grew up, as we read in the scriptures, Moses looked at the situation of his people, and he wanted to do something. And the way that he jumped in is he saw a Hebrew person fighting an Egyptian. And then he jumped in and he fought on behalf of the Hebrew man. And he, in his own might, laid hands on the Egyptian man in a very unbiblical manner. Killed him, okay? He fled from there and he fled into the wilderness. Now, while in the wilderness, he was there. He met his wife. Um, he had a family. Uh, you know, they were, they were doing well. They were doing good. He was, you know, on the gram, let everybody know, life's good for me, right? And then the Lord spoke to him the Lord spoke to him through a burning bush. And when the Lord began to speak to him through a burning bush, he spoke to him and used Moses as a mediator, saying, you are going to go, him and his brother Aaron, and you're going to free my people. The next several chapters is Moses going on behalf of God, to Pharaoh and letting him know that God was present and God was going to free his people. And we saw the mighty act. We saw the mighty wonders of God. And it was ultimately, as he said, it wasn't um, God or excuse me, Pharaoh versus the Israelites or Moses versus Pharaoh. It was God versus Pharaoh. And what we begin to see was God was showing that he was the God of the universe, not just the God of the Israelites, but the God of the universe, but the Israelites were his people and he was going to free them. And the way that he began to show his might were through the ten plagues. We walked through the first nine plagues, and then the final plague was that over the death of the firstborn in the land. And we see this beautiful picture of what we know as the Passover. And the Passover was that God had given instructions that the people of God had to respond to the word of God. And what we said is what faith looks like is us responding faithfully to the word of God in obedience, And the way that they had to respond is that God told them to take a lamb and take the blood, put it on the doorpost, and that night when the angel of death came to those who responded in faith through obedience, that the angel of death would pass over them to those who did not respond to faith and obedience, that there would be death, and that's exactly what happened. And God took his people, led by Moses, and he led them out of Egypt. Josh came back and he taught last week what happened is Pharaoh said, you know what, forget this. We let these people go. We got to get them back. And so Pharaoh got his army, and they chased after the people of God in pride, thinking that they were going to be able to get them. And the people of God were now stuck at a moment where they were in front of the Red Sea. And what God did is he parted the Red Sea, and the people of God went through the Red Sea. And then as soon as they were able to get through, as the chariots and Pharaoh's people chased them, and then all of a sudden the floods came in. And we begin to see God's again, God again showing forth his might and his sovereign control over creation. What we have now is the people are now through the Red Sea. And then they get there, uh, not to the promised land yet, and they begin to sing. Right? And then they write this particular song that we're going to be able to look at uh, this morning in Exodus chapter 15. Now, as far as I can remember... What I have loved to do um, from, in terms of a work is I've always loved with working with people younger than me. First job I ever had, I was 15 years old, um, I was doing daycare, and so I did, they let me, I don't know why, do daycare with uh, kids for a summer job. There was a summer program, and I had these kids that, that um, I mean, basically, I just played basketball with people, and I got paid for it. I'm like, this sounds amazing, right? First job I got in my college, I worked for KidZone, which is, a, which is, a, is an organization here, and I worked at Curry, Curry Elementary over here. Um, it was the first time that um, I had even heard of what autism was. Like, I didn't know what autism was, I'd never heard of it. And there was this kid named Tyler, and Ty- they said, hey, whatever you do, don't let Ty- Tyler um, buy the arts and craft table because he's autistic. And I thought they kept saying artistic because I'd never heard what autism was. And I'm like, this is nonsense. If Tyler is artistic, let him go, right? <laughs> I said, let my people go, right? And so. So Tyler, Tyler would go to the arts and craft table, and like within minutes, glue would be in his hair, glitter would be in his hair, and it was just an amazing time. Like and my, my, uh, my supervisor was like, what are you doing? I'm like, if you said he's artistic, let's just let the kid be who he is. She said, autistic, and he doesn't, he's on the spectrum. And I'm like, the spectrum? I had no idea what these things were. Learned so much that summer with my, my buddy Tyler. Tyler was my dude. Tyler only was able to... Um, like recognize me inside like the school for some reason. This has nothing to the sermon by the way. And um, one day I was at Fry's, and I saw Tyler and I went up to him. I'm like, Tyler, it's Mr. Ricardo. He goes, Mr. Ricardo lives at Curry. And I goes like, No, this is me, right? So I worked with I worked with kids for a while and then I majored in elementary education um, and I student taught in a second grade classroom, which I knew from teaching in a second grade classroom that I never wanted to teach second graders. So from there. I went to high school and I did high school all the way until I became a pastor and of course I became a youth pastor and so forth. Now for the first time after 15 years, I'm back coaching high school boys in football. And I'm going to tell you what's consistent from young kids, even the kids I have, all the way to teenagers is they love music. They love music. Like everybody wants to listen to music. If I get in the car with my sons, there's certain songs they want to listen to. And there's certain dances that go to certain songs. And if you're around kids, you know that these dances, they change every other summer. Whether you're whipping in Nene or hitting them folks or hitting the woe. Well, I mean like whatever, 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 whatever it may be, these things change. And there is a, there is a, no matter what the music is, there is a like a, a mood that is set sometimes when certain songs come on and you watch it. You play a song and you watch a kid sit still, especially if it's their jam. I don't care if it's a four-year-old or someone who's 18 or 19. And it's the same way with us. You know, if there's a car, there's a song that comes on in your car, there isn't, a, there isn't even a way that you drive, right? It almost can set your mood. Like there are certain songs you all of a sudden just got mad at the world, right? Put Eminem on and you're like, yeah, no one, no one respects me, right? And you drive in a certain way. There are certain things that you listen to that no matter how good your day is going, you feel sad. You feel like you just watched 10 episodes straight of of This Is Us. Like somehow my life is miserable, even though it's been going great because of certain songs. There's something about music that does that for us. And there's something about singing that does something for us. Even if you look at it from a neurological standpoint, not because I know anything about neuroscience, but I did read an incredible article um, about what singing does. And some of you know this already, singing does something for us individually, but it's even more enhanced when it happens corporately. One of the things that is, was unique to me, um, having growing up in the church that I grew up, being away from church and the things of God, stepping back into the church, is how, la- how we lack as a people to sing. Like, how we, we will only sing if we like the songs. We will only sing if it's sung in the way in which we particularly like it. Right? Depending on the generation, there are certain hymns that, that some of the older generation will go, I love it, but I don't like the way that you guys remixed it. And you don't usually say remix, but I know what you mean. Right? Or there's some of us who go, well, I really like it when it does this. We have, I remember one person telling me, if, if the band would just hold on to that rift 15 seconds longer, the spirit would come upon us. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm not really sure if that's how it works. Right? <laughs> but there's something about it where either we will engage or we won't engage. I grew up in a church particularly that did not have screens where we looked at the music and sung the songs. We sing the same songs all the time. And you go, well, how did you know them? Because we sing the same songs all the time. And you just knew what those songs were. And those songs pointed to God. They pointed to what God was like. There were certain songs that were, were, would, would, would bring you to a, a, an emotional response of, like, like, God is good. We are separated from by our sin. There are moments that we're, we're just praising God, right? So this is just me. I'm not saying this is your experience. We grew up with tambourines, lots of them, all right? They were on the pews when you walked in, and there were certain people you know that were supposed to have them, and there are certain people that wasn't supposed to have them, right? And you you just knew. You know, Sister Jenkins, she always had it. In fact, she probably had her own, right? And there was a sense where everybody participated in worship. You know why? Christianity is a participatory sport. Everybody gets in on it. And there are songs that we sing of confession. There are songs that we sing of adoration. There are songs that we sing of the way God is moving, and there are songs in which we sing, and we're thanking him already for what he's going to do in the future. So when we come to this particular section of Scripture, we have to realize, first and foremost, this is the first hymn, the first song, that's written in Scripture. And what we begin to understand of worship, primarily as it relates to, to singing, is that worship primarily is when we look back to what God has done, and we worship him for that. If you see here, the way that this is broken up, if you can break it up in two parts, verses 1 through 12 is who God is, what he has done, and how they worship him for it. And then 13 on, all the way to 21, is showing who God is and what he's going to do to the nations ahead of them. Mind you, these are slaves who have known nothing different other than to be slaves. Now to find God, who had already promised Moses in chapter three that eventually my people will worship me. The people didn't worship God. They didn't even know who God was at yet. They didn't really know who He was until He showed forth Himself through His acts. And now they write the song. Now get, we got to do this a little bit. People are like, "Who wrote this song?" Because in the, <clears throat> in the beginning of the song it says that like, Moses is singing. At the end it says Miriam, and Miriam was Moses' sister. And there's some people who think, well, the men sing this part and the women sing this part. What we have here is maybe it was a collection of people, um, primarily Moses and Miriam. They got together and they wrote this song. Let me me tell you, we're not going to sing this song. um, One, because we don't have have the music to go go behind it. Um, I can only imagine two million slaves learning this song. I can only imagine two million slaves, hear me, believing this song saying we want to write this down so that future generations would know what our God is like and what he did and what he's going to do. Amen? So let's walk through this, and we'll have three implications for what that looks like for us. And then you know what we're going to do afterwards? We're going to sing, all right? Like, shocker. Okay, here we go. 15, chapter 1, or chapter 15, verse 1. It says, Then Moses and the people of Israel And his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths of the stone. Your right hand, O oh Lord, glorious in power, Your right hand, O oh Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes like stubble. it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the water piled up. The flood stood up in a heap, and the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. And the enemy said, I will pursue, and I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. And I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead into the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand And the earth swallowed them. Sometimes when we hear worship songs like this, we're like, this seems vicious, right? We haven't been slaves for 400 years. Many of us, if we think about the ways in which God has delivered us, if we think about some of us who've been freed enough from addictions, who've been freed enough from the lies in which we believe, who've been freed from things, who've been delivered by God, we do thank the Lord for those things, when you have real enemies, like real enemies, not mean girl enemies, real enemies, that God, who have been oppressing you, that you realize they are against God, and God has delivered you, you sing songs like, praise be to our God who took the chariots and threw them in the water. They are no longer have dominion over our lives. You sing songs like this. These were not people who are, we just are getting some of the survey results back, The majority of this congregation are college-educated men and women. Had no idea, but a majority of us are. These are not college-educated men and women. These were people who were making bricks. These were people who had lost children. These were people who did not know their God, and God shows up and delivers. And so when they write a song, by the way, after they had just experienced his mighty acts, they write things like, Pharaoh went down and they all drowned. And not in vindictive ways, but in ways to worship the Lord. You know what they're not saying? They're not saying how good they are. They're not in here telling God what they're going to do for God. They're not in there saying, God, um, ultimately we are your people because of how good we are. They're not even saying it's about time, God, that you showed up. We've been praying for 400 years. They are saying, you are the Lord, your right hand, your mighty hand, you are God. What God is there like you? And you say, why would they even ask that question or saying that? You know why? Culture is like the rain. No matter how much you put on, you're going to get a little water on you. And so for 400 years, when you've lived in a land that has believed and worshipped multiple gods, at some point you begin to, to, to also believe in those multiple gods. I don't care who you are and how strong you are in Jesus Christ. You are being shaped by the culture in which we live in. I am being shaped by the culture in which we live in. There's always moments where there needs to be recalibration of my own heart and of my own soul. And it happens in the most mundane ways. You ever notice how sometimes in your life there are certain Let's go back to music. There's certain songs you'll listen to, and, and, and you think they're the most amazing things, and then you start singing these truths or these wannabe truths out loud, and you almost get convicted like, man, should I be singing that? Should I be to the windows to the wall? <laughs> I'm not even going to come close to finish that song. The fact that y'all know that y'all y'all are some sinners. <laughs> so, like, they're, they're, like, should I be singing that? And there's almost like this pendulum that goes because... Even when it comes to our faith in Jesus, many of us who profess faith in Jesus Christ, we we love him, he's our Savior, he's our Lord, and yet we're still shaped by this culture. And we need songs to remind us, is there any God like our God? Absolutely not. We need songs to remind us that when it comes to our life, it is not primarily about my circumstances that I bring to God, but God who actually brings himself to my circumstances, that our worship in itself is centered around the person and the character of God, what he's like, how he's revealed himself through the scriptures, that we may be able to worship him. What we see in these first 12 verses is the people of God now going, we know who God is, and he's one who is mighty. He's one who is good. He's one who rescues. He's one who delivers. He's the one, and even when Pharaoh, as it says here, in his arrogance tries to pursue the people of God, God washed them up. He is a deliverer. What they're doing is they're shaping themselves to understand the mighty works of God and his character. Years later, as a people of God, our worship has to be primarily on God, who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Amen? When worship music, particularly music, in itself become centered around the individual and the person too much, we actually begin to lose the sense of worship. What we see here is God himself is the subject as well as the object of our worship and our affections. If anything else replaces that, we may not be worshiping the God of the Bible. So the people of God here say, here's what you've done. We've seen what you can do. And when you've seen what God can do, you have more confidence and faith in him that he's going to do it again, and so that's what happens in this next point, verse thirteen through twenty-one. You have led your steadfast love; you have led in your steadfast love the people in whom you've redeemed, and you have guided them both by your strength and your holy abode. The peoples have heard; they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed? Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab, and then all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of your greatness of your arm. They are, they are still a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. And for when the, for when the horses of the Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea. The Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, and the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. And then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the tambourine, took the tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, for the horse and his rider has been thrown into the sea. So what you he you see here is the first verse and the last verse is the same. And what you have is the people of God going, here's what God has done. He took Pharaoh's people. He threw them in the water. He, he delivered us. This is what he did. And then now 13 says, you're going to take us to your abode or its dwelling place. Now, many commentators going, okay, what are they talking about here? Are they talking about God taking them to Mount Sinai um, where ultimately God had met with Moses and then where God was going to give his law and his presence? Um, are they talking about the promised land when they're going to get into Jerusalem, this land that they will have forever? Or are they singing about the temple, which will be the permanent space in which God's uh, dwelling, ultimately his presence, will be? Well, I, I don't think it lets us know either one or the other. There's hints that says it is the mountain, but it could be Mount Sinai, but it, it could also be the promised land. Um, what we do know is this. What matters most is not primarily the location, but the very presence of God. And for a people who had not heard about God for 400 years what they are hearing is God desires to be with us forever and ever. The God who delivers us, not because of what we have done, but because of how good he is, desires to be with us forever and ever. The God who is in his right hand, which always means strength, the God in his strength who loves us and delivers us, wants to be with us in his presence forever and ever. And then what they begin to do is look forward to what is to come. And they say the Philistines, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Canaanites, there's a lot of ites that they're going to encounter. And they begin to believe that God is going to go before them. And they worship God for what he has done. They worship him for who he is. And they worship him in faith for what he will do because he's promised it. And so they begin to trust God in that. And they sing songs to desire to be in the dwelling place of the Lord. Now, here's the thing. You know, like I know, if you know this story, this is a beautiful song, and they're excited. Um, Miriam, the prophetess, and a lot of the women, the ones who were supposed to, they get the, they get, they get the, uh, the tambourines, right? There are probably some women that's supposed to get it. It's like, no, we didn't see you do it before. You don't do it like we do it. And so they took the tambourines, and they began dancing. I, I, guys, I'm, I'm, this is not even a joke. I don't know what happened to, like, wh- I would have loved to see, again, 2 million people. You got older people that are there. You got, uh, you got grandmas, great-grandmas, grandpas. They're there. You got moms and dads and kids. You know you got some women that got babies strapped to them, kind of like we do here. And, and somebody picked up the trampoline, and then they start singing. I don't know how long this song went. My assumption is they had rhythm. Why? Because they're Hebrew. And I just figured, you know, they got rhythm. And so they're singing They're dancing. They're clapping. There's two million people singing this song. And I don't know if they sing it over and over again. You know why? They didn't have an 11 o'clock service. They had nowhere else to go. And so they were saying, we can actually let this thing go as long as possible. And they're singing and they're praising the Lord. And you would think everything's going to be good. But I'm just going to, spoiler alert, next week, they're all bad. (laughs) And then for the next 40 years, they're all bad, right? And you say, well, well, what happened? Well, we'll talk about that more next week. And now we have to look at what, what is significant about God's people ultimately singing and worship. Um, and when it comes to us, I don't know why we have a hard time singing, right? Partly, I think it's because we have a lot of choices, right? You know, you know, you know the feeling that you have if you have... Netflix or something like that, you, you, you look through all of the million movies and opportunities you have, and you get done, you go, ah, there's nothing on, right? I, I wonder sometimes, if not just choices, because of so many choices, we have a lot of preferences, and, and there's certain preferences that, that I have. Um, I think, and I'm going to use my own experience, because I can't use yours. Uh, for me, when I, I grew up in a, a predominantly black gospel singing choir robes, Church, like everybody in my church could sing, guys. Everybody. It was very common for the preacher at any moment to bust out into a song. And you say, Ricardo, how come you have not done this? I was the only person in my church who could not sing. It's the reason why I joined this church. No, I'm just joking. No, no, no. I'm, just joking. I'm just joking. So, so we, we, we would sing. Um, and we would sing gospel. When I became a Christian and I start going to a predominantly white church, it has nothing to do with ethnicity. I'm not saying that because you can go to predominantly white churches who got tambourines and they, 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 they bring it when it comes to worship. So I did not like the music. When I first heard, um, like, some of the songs, um, you are holy. Right? And you'd have people on stage, like, doing the thing. And, um, and I just wouldn't sing. And I remember this person who was discipling me. I said, man, he goes, how come you don't sing? I'm like, I just, I'm not feeling it, man. I-, I need a praise band. I need to, I need some Kurt Franklin in this mug. You know, can we do something like that? And he said, what if, what if it wasn't more about your preference, but it was more about your God? And then what if it wasn't about you, but it was actually the people you sing with? And what if you just sing the lyrics, um, even if you don't feel it, because you ultimately believe it? Game changer for me. Game changer for me. And I, I like the songs, most of them. right? <laughs> I, I, I wonder sometimes when it comes to us singing is because like everything else, we made our faith so personal that it doesn't matter about the people next to us. And some of you think you might be doing a service to you, the person next to you because you can't sing. Like if I don't sing, that'd be great because they don't have to worry about it and so forth. It's not about that. There's something about when we sing as a people, it does something to our faith that it begins to remind us who we belong to ultimately God, and that we do belong to each other. And that when it comes to the body of Christ, it's always plural. It's God's people singing to who God is, that we we raise our adoration for who he is in worship collectively. But there's something about us gathering together on Sunday, not just, just hear what the preacher has to say from the word of God, but what God has to say to us and through us as we listen to the word, as we sing the word, as we eat the bread, as we drink the wine, as we interact with one another, that we are being shaped and formed to be reminded that we are God's people. We are not ourselves. We were bought with a high price of the blood of Christ in which we gather together to remind ourselves of that truth. Amen? So what does that look like? Three implications that I have for us, and, then, and, and we'll be able to worship. The, the one is we sing. Here's what we sing. We sing because God has given us a story. We sing because God has given us a song. And we sing because God has given us a Savior. Right. So first, we sing because God has given us a story. What we can see, this is not just the Israel-like story. What we see is, through the Exodus, is, is, is in some way the blueprint of what God's going to do through deliverance. And that is, God sees his people in need. God, in love for his people because of who his character is, he moves in a way to deliver his people— And that ultimately, that those who respond in faith um, by belief and obedience are rescued, are saved, and are delivered. That is what God does through his saving. And what we see is that this story is not an abstract story. But it's a story in which we get included into. And so when I say God has given us a story, I'm not talking about just your individual story. First and foremost, your story starts with God. Hear me on this. When, when I talk with people and, and I ask a question, and you could do this too. You don't have to be a pastor to be able to ask these questions. is hey, when did your story, people who love Jesus, when did your story begin with God? You know what they usually say? They start whenever they became a Christian. They go, oh, when I was 9. Or oh, when I was 17. Or oh, when I was 37, I was at this thing. And then that's when God began in my life. As if God wasn't already at work in their life. Right? What we know to be true about the scriptures is that God... Is at work in our lives far before we can even begin to know who He is. That He is, that it says that He foreknew us, and that is a language of intimacy. When we hear the language foreknew or foreknowledge, sometimes we we get into theological debates. When it's not a theological debate, it is an intimacy of saying that somewhere, somehow, God was intimately involved with my story. Now, whether I met Jesus when I was 17 or I met Jesus when I was 38, whatever it may be, that's happened down here. But it's saying that God himself has always been involved with our story and that he takes... Every single story, somehow, like Jim's book, The Symphony of Mission, he takes the different stories and he brings them together under his great story. And the reason why we know this or how we can know this and know this God is because he's given us the story of all stories in the Bible. And that it's not just little stories in which we begin to understand, but it's the great narrative of God and how we, by invitation and command, participate in this story and we begin to see the great acts of God and the people of God through the scripture, and now in our own lives, we sing in response to who that God is. We don't sing because we feel good. You hear me? We don't sing because the day is going great, okay? The people who have sang most are those who have gone through, gone through the most suffering, right? That It's people who have gone through trials, Israel doesn't just believe in God just to believe in God. God has revealed himself through their trial and through their suffering. It is our experience sometimes that when we look at our stories, we would love for God to get rid of all of the the dark spots in our lives that make things bleak. And God's saying, it's actually in the dark spots that I show my light. And that's how we are engrafted into his story. And this even makes sense as we even look at the suffering of Christ. So none of us are going to be exempt. And so if God has given us a story, no matter what that story is, and it's connected to his story, we sing. And that has nothing to do with how we feel that day. Amen? That has nothing to do with who's singing, who's the worship leader today, what song is it, it, oh, this ain't my jam. It's not about your jam. It's about your God. And has he done what he said he would do, and do you believe that he'll do it again? Amen? So God's given us a story, and this one, God has given us a song, right? We don't sing because we're good singers, right? Some of you probably are good singers, right? You are, and you know what? Power to you. Um, I grew up in a family that everybody in my family can sing, right? Like, you guys have no idea. My my wife is just, like, amazed sometimes. Like, when our family gets together, somebody will bring a, a, a keyboard and... Out of nowhere, my granny could be in the, see my granny. She's seeing my grandma I That's my granny. My granny could be in the kitchen cooking, uh, and somebody will get. We don't have the keyboard today. I know my family probably got it. Um, <laughs> is somebody will just somebody will just start playing something, and then my, like my sister or my cousin or my uncle will start singing. And next thing you know, these beautiful voices they start singing and so forth. And I mean, out of nowhere, we sing there was one person in the family who couldn't sing. It was me, right? And I'm just telling you, nothing is more embarrassing than being the only person in your family who can't sing. Um, so when we got to church, we had, a, we had the regular choir that everybody wanted to be in, and they made cuts too. Not everybody got in the choir, um, <laughs> you know? So, and they had a junior choir, and the junior choir were for the kids. My mom's like, you got to join the junior choir. I'm like, Ma, we already know that I'm not going to make the choir. Like, oh, they're not getting any cuts. You'll make it. So my mom made me sing, right? And so, and I'll never forget Brother James, who was our worship director. Uh, Brother James was like, I'm looking, something, someone's off. Okay, I want the Sopranos to go and the Sopranos, I want the Altos to go. Something is still, and and I'm like, it's me. Everybody knows it. It's me. He goes, okay, what I want you to do is, when you sing, he literally said this, don't sing as loud, Right? (laughs) Can't make make him look bad. That's not how we sing or why we sing. It's never about the performance or how good you sing. You don't have to sing to make God look good. He's already good, right? You sing because he is so good and he's given you a song. If God has given you a song... If you believe that Jesus Christ has died for your sins, has been raised from the dead, and has given you new life, no matter what circumstance that you find yourself in right now, which it could be very bleak and very heavy, you have a song. And sometimes the best way to sing the song is not when you're on a spiritual high, but when your back is on the ground or against the wall. That singing brings you somewhere because it brings you closer to the very presence of God. That you're reminded of what he's like. That you're reminded that he is a redeemer. You're reminded that he takes whatever chariots there are in your life and he throws them underneath the sea. And he may not do it when you want it, but he always does it right on time. Because he's God. And so he's given us a story and then he's given us a song. And lastly, he's given us a savior. We sing because we are saved by the ultimate redeemer that when what god did with our real enemies our real enemies as the bible describes it um it all right, it is not a particular political party it's not um it's not a particular person who has wronged you in ways that you could have never imagine it hurts it's real that's not our enemy Our enemy is not even the particular nations that we may wage war against. Our enemy, biblically, as the people of God, not just in Tempe, but in the whole world, is sin, Satan, and death. And in the same way that we read here in this song that the people of God, the Israelites, that they worship God because he's taken Pharaoh and his chariots and he's drowned them in the sea and they no longer have dominion over here. Now because of the death and the shed blood and the resurrection of Christ Jesus, that sin, Satan, and death no longer have dominion over us. That we now have a Savior in Christ Jesus who is not dead, but who is alive, who sits and reigns at the right hand of the Father, who welcomes us into his presence in which we may worship him through the power of his Holy Spirit, which he has given every single person who has believed and has faith in him. And that means every little battle that we find ourselves in, and every, um, so to say, um, trial that we have ourselves in we are not left alone because the same god who says he wants to dwell with them forever does dwell with us forever and ever jesus christ our redeemer our deliverer says i will never leave you nor forsake you the people of god we know this they're about to go into wilderness they're they're about to turn their back against the god in whom they just sing about and god's going to be present with them can we be honest me and you We're about to walk out of here and at some point today or tomorrow we're going to turn our back against our god and whom we just amened about and whom we love and he still remains present and faithful and you know what we're going to do on tuesday we're going to turn our back against that god again and he remains present and faithful to us and then we're going to do it on wednesday and we're going to do it on thursday and somehow we're going to be back here again and yet god is still going to be present and faithful to us because he has defeated the ultimate enemies of sin satan and death and he's given us the victory only and our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen? If we can't sing, hear me, guys, if we cannot sing because we have a Savior, then maybe the Savior in our lives may not be enough. And it's not because he's not enough, it's because we might be looking to other things to be our Savior. We might be looking to our spouses, we might be looking to our careers, we might be looking to all these good things that we made the main thing, and in making them the main thing, we missed the most important one, And it was Jesus Christ. So, what repentance looks like for us is not just stop doing the things we're doing, it's a worship issue. It's actually taking our eyes and fixing them firmly on the one who, at infinite cost to himself, gave himself for us that we may be delivered and rescued, and that we can look forward to the day in which he will establish and reign his kingdom. And until then, we continue to worship and reflect who he is to the people around us. So, I want you to close your Bibles. Bible apps let's pray God sometimes just in the desire to be creative Lord we love to have differences and yet Lord somehow you're able to take our differences our different stories our different backgrounds and wrap them all into the person and work of your son Jesus and that you've given us Lord a record of what the world is like and what the world ought to be like and what the world would be like ultimately and will be like and who you are. We thank you for the Bible, the true story of the world in which you have given us, Lord, that we may worship you, that we may worship you, Lord, when you you take us to the foot of Mount Sinai in fear and trembling, that we may worship you, Lord, when we are experiencing the, the milk and honey that you give us in the promised land. That we may worship you, Lord, when we we feel like we're near to you in the very presence of the temple. God, that we could even worship you when we are wandering in the desert for 40 years when it feels like you are so distant. That we are able to worship you, Father, when our backs are not only against the wall, but our backs are against you. That you pursue us. That we may worship you because you never change. Father, we thank you for your goodness, Lord. We love you and we praise you. God, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit that we be able to see our Savior and be able to take the song in which he has given us, Lord, and that we may live it and sing it with our lives, that we may live it and sing it with our creativity, that we may live it and sing it with our actions, that we may live it and sing it with our families, that we may live it and sing it with the other people of God until you come and restore and renew all things. God, we thank you and we praise you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.